Welcome to We Shadows, the podcast about design and technical theater in the Twin Cities. I'm your announcer, Anita Kelling. Recently, Rachel Lanto sat down with freelance sound designer Katherine Horowitz. Listen in as they talk about sound design, composing, gear, and jumping into the unknown with both feet. This conversation took place on March 16th, 2021. Welcome, Catherine Horowitz. Uh, I'm Rachel Lanto, and we're on an episode of We Shadows. And this week, we're interviewing a fabulous uh, freelance, right, sound designer from the Twin Cities. Yep. Um, and we are so excited to have you here. Um, you're kind of a badass. <laughs> so um, I just want to open it right up to talk about... Um, First of all, why don't you tell us exactly what you do? If I'm a, the- if I'm a person who doesn't work in theater um what is a sound designer or you know I know you also do some work more in the mechanics of sound as well um tell me about that yeah sure I actually just explained this to the guy at the apple store the other day who sold me my new iphone so (laughs) um so I mean basically what a sound designer does is they create they help create the world of the play or the world of the story through sound um so you know, sound envelops just about everything we do every day. Even if you're just walking down the street, you are surrounded by the environment of, you know, the cars and the birds and the wind in the trees, et cetera, et cetera. And that is what, that is what makes up your, your reality. Or, you know, if you're in a fantasy world, then, you know, whatever it is that you hear there is what makes up the reality of that world. And so that is what, that's what I do as a sound designer. Um, Even if it's just some dogs and crickets, or if it's, you know, heavily underscored constantly all the way through uh, immersive sound design, immersive sound is is what I do as a designer. Yep. And you record that and you make it into a cueable function for some kind of yes. show? Yeah. So, I mean, it involves quite a lot of research and collecting of um, different sounds, uh, different pieces of music, if I'm doing that as well. Um, And then just a whole lot of play uh, and failure in rehearsals. I I really do like to, I mean, unless it's, you know, a Neil Simon play with five doorbells and a phone ring, uh, then I usually like to involve myself in rehearsals almost at the very top, like maybe I'll give you a week, but then I like to come in and start playing, even if it's just on my headphones and I'm the only one who can hear it. But experimenting to see what works, what the flow of the play is, uh, what the flow of the dialogue is like, um, and basically just like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, And then, yeah, and then eventually all of those cues, all of those sound files will get put into QLab, which is some show control playback software for those who don't know, um, which is then... uh, run by an operator and called by the stage manager and that's how the show runs yeah um i'm gonna put a pin in that because i want to talk more about your how uh recording works and how you find yeah you know doorbells and all those things but first i'd love to just (laughs) talk more about you um because you know it occurs to me in my brain some people think well you know a doorbell like 
what what do you record your own do- doorbell and go from there but you know i know that there's vast sound libraries out there and you probably have a library of your own it's like a it's like a giant record collection probably um that, yeah yeah um but before we get into that i want to talk uh tell me how you specifically Catherine, um how did you end up here in the twin cities and how did you end up becoming a sound designer how did that come about uh, so I have always been doing theater, like even since I was five and putting on little plays in my parents' basement. Um, and then I went to the University of Iowa, where I majored in theater, uh, with the intent of becoming a famous actress. And that wasn't really working out very well for a variety of reasons. <laughs> but um, my roommate at the time, Lindsay, she was a sound designer. And then I was also DJing at the local college radio station, KRUI. And so I thought, all right, well, whatever, I'll just take a sound design class. So I took one and then I took sound design number two class and found out, discovered that I really, really enjoyed it. Um, Unfortunately, this was all during my senior year. So I was a bit of a latecomer. But I was able to design a couple of their little, you know, side stage shows and then one main stage show. Um, And then upon graduation, I got an internship at the Orlando Shakespeare Festival for a few months, um, just as an A2, as an assistant, and did that for a little bit. And so it was sort of just like I, I, I accidentally slid into sound design. I never meant to do this. And if you had told me when I was 16 and wanted to be a famous actress that actually I would be a sound designer slash composer and love it, I, you know, I would have, I would have scoffed at you in my 16 year old way. Um, but anywho, so the internship was done. I briefly moved back to Iowa City for just a couple of months and then decided to move to the Twin Cities. This was back in 2000 um, because I thought that I would be eaten alive if I went to either one of the coasts. Um, and I probably would have been chewed. <laughs> but I, Now that I look back on it, I might have been nibbled on, but I don't think I would have been eaten alive. <laughs> um, but anyway, so that was but that was why I didn't you know, go to New York. And then Chicago, for some reason, just didn't appeal to me. Um, but Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, I knew were thriving in the arts, the theater arts scene and continue to do so. Um, I also now realize that it's also because I'm very much a Midwestern girl. Um, I, it took me a long time to admit that, but I am. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I moved up here. And now that I look back on it, I moved up here with no jobs pro- prospects in either theater or like the regular world and only knowing one person. And I cannot believe it worked out because that just sounds like the stupidest thing to do. But <laughs> I got, let's see, I worked for the Fringe Festival back in 2000 when Dean Seal was the director i think um i was able to get a show at trp and then i just got like a day job and i had that for eight years while i while i bummed it around town um with tiny gigs tiny theaters and then in 2008 i went full-time freelance which was the wrong year to be doing something like that Mm -hmm. but here we are Uh, um and just sort of kept on moving on and then around 2000, uh, I don't know, 14 or 15 is when I began to sort of dip my toes into the composing pool to create, you know, original music. 
so that I could have something else to offer theaters and also have a little bit more ownership in my creations. Um, then 2017, I got the McKnight Fellowship, which was super great. And and then, yeah, and then here we are. So it's been a pretty good, it's been a slow but steady journey. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's 2021 20, now. Um, yeah. So this year we had this crazy pandemic and, um, you know, the world shut down for a minute and um, the industry is still sort of on its way back. What what happened to you? How did it how did uh, how did this go for you and how have you been working in this time? What happened to me is what happened to everybody else for the first several months um, as the theater industry was also t- still trying to figure out how they were going to adapt to this new situation. I will say that I have been fortunate because sound design translates a little better to virtual productions than other uh, design genres. Um, It's built for that. And it almost thrives a little bit off of it because, uh, because you are not able to be in an actual space with an actual set design and costumes and, and real lighting. You are, um, you are so much more reliant upon sound to tell that story. And so really what it comes down to is the story and the acting slash directing. Um, And if there are visual opportunities like scenic rendering and costumes, that's great. But then there's also the sound and it's so, it's so much more intimate Um, virtual productions and audio dramas are so much more intimate than doing it in the actual theater and so that's awesome on and also terrifying um it's awesome because yay then you know i i get to play and i get the attention but then it's also a little more terrifying because oh crap i really have to make this sound good um so i have been fortunate in that i have had uh let's see two audio dramas and two or three um uh, virtual productions um all that being said, however, I would, I don't know, chop off my left arm to <laughs> be able to be in a theater again. Like, it's been great to learn all of this new stuff for doing virtual productions, le- learn these new skills or develop um, get, getting better with skills. But man, it is not it's not the same as being stuck in a dark theater for 10 hours out of the day with people that you love eating too many M&Ms all trying to tell the same story. I, I never knew how much I really, really missed that. And I would give anything to, to get it back again. Absolutely. Just that community of collaboration. In art. Exactly. In in-person collaboration. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you had mentioned that COVID has changed the sound design scene and you kind of alluded to that in your in chatting about your um your own work tell me more about how has it changed the sound design scene um i'm not sure that it's i mean it's elaborated or it's a uh it's um what's the word i'm looking for not elaborated but that's close enough so I'm part of a national association, and so we're all discussing this. And it's more about um, us adapting to 
constantly evolving new technology, <clears throat> figuring out technology that we never necessarily had to use before, like Zencaster, which is what we're on right now. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, I learned how to use a loudness meter because when you're doing an audio drama and you're going to upload it to Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, whatever, you want to make sure that all of your levels are hitting the correct level that that platform will accept. It's really complicated, but mm -hmm. um, you know, you want to make sure everything sounds right when you master it down altogether. So, you know, learning how to do that, um, um, learning, <laughs> learning how to accurately estimate the amount of time and work it is going to take to put together all of this stuff because it's much more involved particularly audio dramas are much more involved than a regular play because it's all just sound i mean when i did so i did the trademark theater show um understood last fall and pillsbury Pil pillsbury houses the great divide 4.0 i think as well they were great experiences they were really illuminating experiences i'm glad i had them but holy cow i thought i was gonna die it was so much work oh, dang. especially dialogue editing is bananas it's it's so much i don't know how dialogue editors for film do it um so that was a lesson i'm better at it now but now i wish i, I i'd probably get an assistant if and when i do this again mm -hmm. so it's really more about how you know how can we better our skills our audio skills and keep up with the latest audio technology virtual audio technology and how can we use those skills to better the audio storytelling absolutely um it sounds like maybe sound designers have been changed by covid you know in the ways that you all have adapted uh oh yeah everything. definitely and i imagine i mean i gotta tell you it's probably for the better because we've all learned these new skills absolutely uh so you know we'll eventually hopefully be able to come out of it being even smarter and with more to offer absolutely um what is it that draws you to sound design what is it that makes you so passionate and um you know about it the emotional and psychological aspect that sound can have on a person or on an audience is what draws me to sound design i really love that i really love how a piece of music or a low underscore rumble that very very gradually sneaks in before can affect how you feel in a way that sometimes the dialogue might struggle to do or anything else. Um, but suddenly you hear this little tiny melody and you're like, oh my God, and you're sobbing or, you know, you're sitting there in your seat and you hadn't heard that low rumble before, but holy crap, something about the environment has just changed and now you're freaked out and you know something terrible is going to happen. Well, that's probably because the subwoofers were doing their job and haha, ha, I just played around with your psyche and I loved it. I, I do. That's really, I like, I, I like being able to emotionally manipulate audiences because I am a psychopath. Um, but yeah, that's, I don't know. I just, um, yeah, I just love how much it can draw out emotion. I think something that I continue to be awed by, especially in the COVID world where um, 
you know, a lot of us are not collaborating uh, in a room together at the moment anyway. Uh, there's an aspect of theater that, I mean, like at the end of the day, you can stick an actor on stage and, you know, sing out a Shakespeare monologue. Absolutely. You can just do that. And if you have the ability to put a costume on them, to give them dramatic lighting, to give them, you know, an emotional underscore, uh, like just the art that adds to that moment, um, adds so much impact, um, to whatever they're doing. It's really magical. And I think that people don't fully wrap their brains around exactly what's happening until they're like, you know, like you said, sobbing in their seat. Right. I mean, it is very, it, it usually has to be pretty subtle or else it doesn't work. Um, I will say, however, that I don't, I, I, uh, none of that subtle emotional manipulation would be as effective if I didn't have the rest of my team members around me. If I, I mean, it would be somewhat, I guess, effective to just be hearing the beautiful piece of music, but probably not as much without the lighting designer um, slowly morphing their lights and um, the actor really delivering that monologue and maybe a a slight little change in the scenery or some, you know, anything like that. So I I do recognize that is very, very much a team effort and that man, for as much as I love working on my own and being in my little hidey hole with my headphones, I also acknowledge how much I really, really need that team collaboration as well in order to tell that story. Yes. Effectively. I am also struck by, as I hear you talk about the way that you choose to uh, emotionally manipulate the audience, um, the forethought of art that goes into that um you know just when you were talking about subtleties um you know there might be an occasion where I assume that you choose to this is a moment where I'm going to be real heavy-handed um that sort of thing um some of the choices you make as a sound designer um you know are so dependent on what's happening in the room and the play and the and what style of show it is um would you mind chatting about that for a minute um, art about how 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 I make my choices yeah or like your artistic process what kind of things do you take into consideration when you're when you're making your design I mean you always want to take into consideration the story I know I, I keep I feel I sound like I sound like a broken record but it, it is something that I have learned over the last two decades because in the beginning when I was young a lot of it was about me showing off um, and me experimenting and showing off and experimenting is good showing off is not. So, um, and that's fine. I was, you know, young and doing this in small theaters and that's the place to do it. But then eventually you learn that you really need to stop, you know, uh, pimping yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. And because you are here to service the story. So my process is to experiment and, you know, is this, um, you know, is this sound effect or this piece of music going to be so distracting that it takes away from what we're supposed to be paying attention to, which is the action or the dialogue? I mean, I literally just did a play that opened last weekend where uh, the design or the director and I were trying to choose between between two different pieces of music underneath a pretty important and 
traumatic under uh, di- monologue, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I really like this piece, but the problem is, is that I start listening to it instead of the actor. Yeah. And I said, great, then let's not use it because that's not right. So I'm really there to try to support. And if there is a moment where all stops can be pulled out, like, um, I don't know, I'm thinking when I did Richard III at Great River Shakespeare Festival and there's the final battle. Well, hell yeah. You know, pull out all the stops for that. First of all, you only have what, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 actors and you need to make it sound like you've got an entire army with horses and a bunch of flaming arrows. So <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and show off because I think I've got license to do that Um, um, and then pull out all the stops from that. But uh, yeah, so it's just about experimenting, feeling comfortable about screwing up, which is hard. It's so it's so hard to make yourself vulnerable like that. You know, we we had a run through for this show. I'm just going to say what it is. Um, it's called To the Moon. Yeah. Uh, it was produced by Creed Repertory Theater in Creed, Colorado, and it is available for on-demand streaming for free till April 11th. <laughs> um, but anywho, uh, so we were doing a run-through, and I was playing some music back, and the director and I were using Slack to chat with each other. And I was hearing it underneath this dialogue and I just typed to her ew 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 god no no let's not use this oh this is terrible and I felt really embarrassed that I had even attempted to use that that sound but at the same time that's the only way to figure out that it wasn't going to work and she was totally cool with it because I you know I didn't want to be like oh god I hope she doesn't think I'm that I'm that bad or unskilled or unartistic (laughs) of course she didn't um but that's, it's really important. And sometimes it's just easier to do that. It gets easier to do that the more mature you become um, and the more comfortable, comfortable you become with that process of trial and error. And I honestly find the process of elimination, okay, we know we don't want that, to be just as helpful as knowing what you do want. Hmm. Yeah. Um, that's so interesting to me. Thank you for sharing all that. <laughs> Um, when you were starting out, did you have mentors? Did you have anybody who was teaching you or guiding you along the way? Um, like I had good friends. I didn't have any real mentor. Um, Chris Hegel, who at the time was the sound supervisor at, actually it was, I first met him when he was at Intermedia. Intermedia Arts, and then he was at CTC, and now he's and then he now he's not at NPR, but something like that. Um, he was very helpful in at least just giving me gigs, um, just you know, stupid little gigs where I pushed a card around. Um, and I will say that uh, venerable sound designer C. Andrew Mayer um, was also was also very welcoming and helpful to me, and I wouldn't have made my place at Pillsbury House Theater without him because uh, he brought me on to be a co-designer for a show when he couldn't be there the entire time. Um, uh, and Reed Raja as well, who's at the now at the Guthrie, um, was also very helpful. Now, I would have to say, and he knows this, um, but I would say Sten Severson, mm-hmm. who is the sound director at CTC, at Children's Theater Company, 
is the person who I would most closely consider my mentor. He's also a a friend and a colleague, but, um, you know, he's the person I can ask the dorky geeky audio questions to, because he's totally going to know what they are. Uh, like he just helped me install this infrared sensor trigger at the jungle because the jungle is just now it's closing, I think, is having a window display. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could have touch free sound? But I don't know how the hell to do that. <laughs> but Sten does. And sure enough, he helped talk me through it and it worked and it was so cool. Um, so but so, yeah, so I, I have those men to thank. Um but I, I don't know that I ever really had someone who I definitely was an assistant for for several years or something. I mean, Sten now, actually, I, I am. But when I was younger, I mean, it was mostly me kind of carving out my own way. Yeah. For better or worse. Did you have uh, – how did you build up your network um, as you started yeah. to work more? Well, it was, you know, I really credit it with the tiny theaters that I worked at here in the beginning. Because um, as I said before, this probably because of the University of Iowa or University of Iowa, excuse me, University of Minnesota, as well as Augsburg and McAllister, there are so many recent theater grads who come out and and decide for better or worse to start their own bitty theater company. But it is for better because the then that is a great way to get your foot in the door to be able to safely experiment and to be able to meet people who are in roughly the same position that you are, roughly the same age, experience, skills, etc. And then you all start to work together and you all start to hire each other and get your name out there. And that's exactly what happened. So I would say, you know, first it was TRP. Um, then it was theater pro rata for a while. That was a really, that was a really huge one. Um, gremlin theater with whom I still work was a huge one. And then eventually like I just kept moving and moving up. And then Jeff Hall Flavin, who, uh, was a local director here. He's now in the UK called me out of the blue to design for a midsummer night's dream at park square theater, which at the time was the biggest show I'd ever done at the biggest theater I'd ever worked in. And and I consider that, I consider that like a huge stepping stone. And then that also, um, now Jeff and I have a great relationship as director, designer, and friends. Um, and it just sort of kept going on from there. Um, and then also, I love marketing myself. I know there are a lot of technicians and designers who don't, and that's totally cool, and I understand. Um, but I grew up with a mom who was in local politics, and she worked the room. And I would watch her work the room and now I'm able to work the room. So I, (laughs) so like any parties that we would go to or, you know, here in the, in the twin cities and after parties and in the lobby, I'm like, hi, I'm Catherine, blah, 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 blah. And I, so I would just shove myself at you so that you know me (laughs) and I have no shame. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh yeah that's definitely that's definitely a struggle for uh, a chunk of us. I have no shame. <laughs> um, do you feel that the over the years that you have been a sound designer that the practice itself has changed over time? Uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, technology has has advanced. I mean, when I started. 
Q Lab was not, didn't exist. SFX, which was its predecessor, mm. barely existed. Um, so we were still doing CDs and mini discs. Um, but that's kind of obvious. Uh, so um, I would say that there are maybe two things. One, with the advent of the Tonys, I was way, way back, 2008 or whatever, mm. when they first gave the, they first gave an award for sound design, and then they took it away <laughs> for a couple of years, which is how this association that I belong to was formed, the Theatrical Sound Designers and Composers Association. Mm -hmm. And we were formed partly to um, bring more attention to ourselves as sound designers and what we do and trying to educate the public and the theater people what we do and why we are important, important enough to recognize at the Tonys, uh, you know, regarding any, any other kind of award shows. Um, because at the time we were still kind of like the young little sister of, of theater design genres. Um, I think that's getting a lot better now. And then I would also say, of course, you know, that it has been largely dominated by white male people. Uh, and that's getting slowly better. We're getting slowly but surely more representation, particularly um, women and female identifying people. Not so much with BIPOC people, at least not here in the Midwest that I can tell, which is a bummer. We're working on it. Um, wish there were more. Mm -hmm. Still wish there were more women. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I understand, like, it's it's intimidating to me sometimes because it is sort of tech heavy. And because I didn't get into it until my senior year of college, I wasn't able to focus quite as much on the tech side of audio, like audio engineering, as I wished I had been able to. So I'm much more of a creative software driven designer than I am the put together your system designer. You don't want me for your musical. I'm so sorry, but you don't. <laughs> but I wish that you could. I wish I knew more of that. I wish I had felt more comfortable to be stupid about it in my early years. But I didn't because I didn't want to look dumb because I was already female. And so I really didn't want to look dumb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So that, that is a, that is a regret of my career. Um, I don't, uh, I don't particularly like calling a whole lot of attention to myself as a female designer simply because I feel like it should just be normal. I don't feel like it should be a thing where like, this is Catherine and she's a female sound designer. Just, it's fine. I'm, yep. Okay. I'm a chick and I design sound. I mean, I, there were several years ago, I was part of an NPR panel of three female audio people, and we were interviewed by Carrie, Mer Carrie Miller. And you know what? It was so cool because, I don't know, it was like a two-hour interview, maybe not even that much, but we spent most of it just talking shop. We didn't talk about our genders until the last half hour. It was great. It was normal because that's what it should be. I really don't want to sit here and talk about my gender. I would much rather talk to you about the best ways to use Pro Tools or something. Have it be normal. Because anyway, that was a little that was a bit of a tangent. Woo! <laughs> no worries. Because that's why you got into this in the first place was because you fell in love with the art form, not because you're like, yeah. oh, I want to be the girl that breaks in. Yeah, now I, I can know. be the girl. Yeah, I don't. Mm, no, Gross. I don't. What? Bleh. 
if you don't mind, I what what other barriers what barriers do you feel like are holding people back from becoming part of the sound industry? Like as a female and also like, you know, as somebody who's in the industry, there's certainly barriers to being um, you know, black indigenous people of color as well. Can you do you feel that you can speak to that at all? Yeah. I don't know that I can feel I, I don't know that I feel that I can speak to the barriers that BIPOC people face. Sure. Not just because I'm I'm not a BIPOC person, but also because I'm not entirely sure. I, I don't know if it is uh, systemic racism or um, sexism. I, I honestly don't know. Sure. One thing I do know is that part of it is uh, you don't make a lot of money. Real. It is hard to have a steady um, income on this that allows you to to pay your bills, consistently pay your bills. And I will be very honest with you um, that I am able to do this because I was fortunate enough to not have any college debt. And I am also married to a man who has a corporate job. Um, And so it's a little, I, I, I have struggled in the past to admit that because I feel like I should you know, be able to be financially autonomous or something. But yep, that's the way that I have been able, I've been privileged enough to be able to have those things so that I can do what I want. Um, And particularly do, I, I was particularly privileged to have them so I could do what I wanted to do 10 years ago. Now I'm starting to make enough money that like, I'm okay. But back then when I was working these itty bitty gigs and had to have a day job as well, it was hard. It was really hard. You can't just do this for a hundred bucks a pop. It's not sustainable. And then go to work. And God forbid, if you have kids, I I, I don't have children, two kitties. Um, but so yeah, it's difficult to make this profession financially sustainable, particularly if you are freelance. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I imagine you have to have a certain amount of gear of your own in order to make a lot of things that you want to do um yeah you kind of do uh I have acquired gear over time but it is not a cheap industry at least not if you want to get good results yeah you you, and you can borrow some of that gear um but by and large yeah I mean you know this laptop that I'm talking to you off of right now is actually kind of new because um when I was doing those two audio dramas earlier back in the fall, I was running out of space because uh, dialogue files take up, oh my God, so much storage. <laughs> it's bananas. And I was using three external hard drives. It was not sustainable. So I had to buy a new laptop, which now apparently can power the Pentagon. Um, <laughs> and I can write that off, but it was not cheap. Um, so yeah, it's... So I can't... So yeah, I cannot speak to... Um, you know, uh, societal issues so much as I can speak to financial issues is is what would definitely be a barrier in this industry. Absolutely. Um, I do want to talk about your gear in a positive light, totally. though, too. Hell yeah. <laughs> I know. I love my gear. You know, we've talked about, you know, the financial challenges of sorts of 
things, but at the same time, you have a bunch of really cool gear. <laughs> um, do. And you have the ability to make an amazing amount of art. And, um, you know, you were talking earlier about composing. I, tell me more about that. How does all, how do you make that happen? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I steal. Um, and, and actually I do. Like, so what I will do is I will amass a playlist of pre-existing music that I think would work for the show. Um, I'll send it to my director and, you know, she'll say, yeah, I love this. This will work for this scene. This will work for that scene. And then I'll try to recreate that music. Mm. And inevitably, um, it will turn into something different. It will turn into something that sounds similar to what we were listening to, but it is, it's own thing um, that is also specifically crafted for a scene for a dialogue um, with its own specific pauses and own specific instruments and so that's how how I'll do it like I'm a huge fan of cellist Zoe Keating so I will listen to a lot of her music and like oh my god I, I could everything she creates would work for everything but so you know one of her famous pieces is um, Escape Artist. And I will try to recreate that. I use Logic Pro and an external keyboard. And then I'll just change it up. You know, maybe I don't want this to be a cello. Maybe I would like this to be a viola and viola and piano and some weird ambient kind of synth sound or something. Uh, she doesn't use drums. She's literally just a, cell a cellist. So maybe I'll add some drums in here. And then eventually it sounds like a piece of music that was inspired by Zoe Keating, but is my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you uh, do recordings uh, for doorbells or whatever it may be, <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you go about that? What does that look like? If I'm If I'm a pe person who has never done it before, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I will say, thank God it's more than doorbells, because if it were just doorbells, I'd get really bored of this career <laughs> right? super fast. But I so actually, I don't record everything that is needed. I, I have a huge sound library um, of sound effects. And then I also then there are let, let's see, there's an app called Soundly, S-O-U-N-D-L-Y. Um, that you just pay $15 a month for, and it has a huge library of stuff. And then there's um, sounddogs.com and soundsnap.com so that you can just sort of pay a fee to get certain sound effects. Because, you know, for instance, for To the Moon, the Creed show that I just did last week, we needed a couple kids yelling, mom, mom. And we didn't have time to record the actor's actual children. And there were some people who felt a little uncomfortable about doing that. Um and I was in the middle of Evanston, Illinois, actually taking care of my father who was having cataract surgery while we were in tech. I only had, I didn't have any, I didn't have the right kid sounds in my own library. So I just hopped on to, I think it was SoundSnap and found a couple pre-recorded, pre-existing uh, recordings of kids yelling mom. Oh. So I use those. I, you know, I paid a flat fee for them and I use those. And another, and then again, like, you know, if you need to have the sound of a 747, Okay, I don't I don't have access. I, I don't have access to the Minneapolis airport. I mean, I suppose I could, but I also don't have the equipment or the knowledge to know how to climb up into a, the underbelly of a plane <laughs> and record a, a jet engine, nor do I want to. Um, or a better example would be if I am doing a show that is set in, I don't know, southeastern China. 
there's no way in hell that theater has the money to pay me to go to whatever region of China and record the flora and fauna. So I need to find those, you know, those elements somewhere else online. So I do have a field recorder. I do have microphones that I can go out. I've recorded the light rail before. I've recorded um, the corner of um, Chicago and 35th, which is where Pillsbury House is at. Um I've recorded the sound of my own backyard. I've recorded the sound of creeks uh, and bird song. So it's a little combination of both. And then sometimes it's just time. You know what? Like, oh my God, we need to suddenly have the sound of crickets or this particular bird in the next 12 hours. You're just going to grab it off of the of a website. Yeah. Um, and, and if you pay for it, then you can use it. That's not, it's not copyright infringement. Right. Yes, absolutely. Oh, copyright infringement. That must be a That's whole... another whole thing. Yeah. yeah. We can have another podcast. Yeah. About really. That. Tell me about it. <laughs> um, so your equipment and technology, this field recording, all your gear. Um, gosh, that's quite a collection of, of tools that you have to make all this happen. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, what future goals do you have for yourself as a sound designer? You know, you're coming out of this pandemic and you've already got, you know, quite a career behind, you know, behind you. So yeah. what's next? I'd like to continue expanding upon my composing skills. Um, and I'd like to get a little more of a national presence. Um, I love the Twin Cities theater community, and I don't plan on leaving it. Um, I, I love it for its vibrancy, its variety, and also its people. I have so many good friends here. I think it's a, a, such a supportive community. However, I do sort of feel as though there is a glass ceiling here. Mm. And I don't mean that in a gender way. I mean that in a, um, uh, like a national way. Like, <sighs> I feel as though for the most part, and I, I'm only speaking to designers, I can't really speak for actors. There's only so far you can go here and then you're kind of stuck because the Twin Cities is a little bit of a flyover country when it comes to theater. You know, if you are a designer in Chicago or a designer on the East Coast, you are much more able to have a national presence than you are here. Because there are so many more directors and producers who travel up and down the eastern seaboard seeing shows in Boston and Baltimore and New York and D.C. And even Chicago, more than there are here. Mm -hmm. um, and we also only have one Lort Theater, mm -hmm. the Guthrie. Um, and they employ a lot of outside directors, uh, not so much local directors. And they allow those outside directors to bring in their own teams. And more often than not, those are teams who are also non-local. So it is very hard for a local designer then to get a foot in the door in their own theater that's up the street, which is very unfortunate. Um, so that is that is a goal of mine is to try to have a little bit more of a national presence while keeping the Twin Cities as my home base. Yeah, absolutely. Do you hope that there's... Do you think it'll ever change? Do you think there'll ever be, you know, something blossoming here of another Lort Theater or who knows that it won't be such flyover country? That's a great question. I I doubt we're going to get another Lort Theater. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, that's okay, probably. Well, I don't know. Um, it, uh, 
and I speak hesitantly about this because I don't want to subject myself to backlash, especially if I'm wrong and I don't want to be wrong. But my impression, my impression uh, is that until and unless we get some artistic directors of prominent theaters here actively advocating for the Twin Cities theater community to have that a more more of a national presence, like trying to really put us on the map, then no, we might not move beyond where we're at. And I hope I'm wrong about that. I'm more than open to having a conversation and being politely criticized. <laughs> um, but that is my impression, yeah. I think. Do you, what strengths do you feel that the Twin Cities have? What things do you think are really the best things that we do here? We have so many people here telling so many stories. We have the Playwright Center here. We do have the Guthrie here. I mean, we, and we have these wonderful, um, like, I'm not, the word is, you know, but like social justice uh, uh, theaters like Mixed Blood and Pillsbury House and Penumbra. Um, I think the jungle is the cutest little gem as well. Uh, and I can't wait to see how they will continue to evolve. Um, and again, these tiny little bitty theaters where we can all experiment and get our foot in the door. Um, I do feel as though we are still pretty white. Mm. Uh, I think that also is partly just because we're in Minnesota. Um, I don't necessarily think it's entirely the theater community's fault here, it is you know there's some of that but it's also eh, it's minneapolis which is pretty white um but that being said i think there is such a wealth of talent and um not eagerness but uh, excitement i don't yeah vibrancy to tell stories here and that's why i love being here that's what drives me to continue to remain here is the talent the vibrancy and the community support absolutely um, I've sort of reached the end of my, my little list here. Um, what, what, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Anything else that you'd like to say, um, on our little podcast? Um, no, I, other than, uh, yeah, I really, really cannot wait until we are all back together in a theater, um, stuck in there. Probably no more 10 out of 12s because those are slowly going away, thank God. But still, 8 out of 10s. <laughs> um, all telling a story together, all trying to have the same goal. We're all, you know, we're all in this together. We're all struggling together. And I never realized how much I really m- rely on that um, as as inspiration um, until it was gone. Um, and so I am going to be a sobbing wreck the first time we're ever back in an actual space. And then I'm going to be so excited. I'll be doing tiny happy dances all over the stage. (laughs) (laughs) If you were to give a little bit of advice to uh, say younger Catherine, or if it were just a young budding sound designer, um, what would be some advice you would have for them? Um, Well, as I mentioned before, I wish I had, uh, forced myself to learn what scared me more. Mm. Um, so in my case, it was audio engineering and technology. Perhaps in someone else's case, it would be software and composing. But I, I wish that I had 
forced myself to to confront what scared me or intimidated me. Um, one thing that I am glad I did, and I would encourage um, younger designers to do because I don't see it as often, is putting yourself out there, shoving yourself in front of people. I mean, not being a jerk about it, not being obnoxious about it, but really, really hey, can I help you with this? Hey, just letting you know that I exist. And if you need an assistant, please reach out to me. Um, setting up a website. The website was like creating a website was actually a really, really great thing that I did. I did it on Wix. I paid, I don't know, $11 a month for it. I've had a lot of good feedback for people going there. They're able to listen to some of my clips. Um, it's been really helpful. So having a presence and reminding people of that presence is something I would I would highly encourage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah, <laughs> for sitting yeah. down with us again. Totally. And for um, sharing your story. Uh, it's lovely to get to My know pleasure. some of the folks here in the Twin Cities and hear more about what you do. So, yeah. No, this is great. <laughs> I love talking about myself. I love talking about what I love to do. So, it's fine. Love it. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Catherine. Um, You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for this episode of We Shadows. If you enjoyed it, please recommend it to your friends, colleagues, and students. If you loved it, like us on Facebook and please hit the follow or subscribe button on your chosen podcast platform. We Shadows was created by Liesa Behrens, Rachel Lanto, and Anita Kelling. It was recorded over Zencaster and produced by Anita Kelling. Our theme music was composed and performed by J. William Kelsch. We Shadows can be found wherever you search for your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in this week, and be sure to check us out every Wednesday for new episodes.